What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, two things going on at the same time. On the one hand, Fox News is going into their third week of hysteria about cancel culture and Dr. Seuss. And Ted Cruz is joining with Tucker Carlson in trashing the military for allowing, oh my God, women to serve. I'm not making this up. What about the wax? The Women Air Corps back in during World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had Ted Cruz been a senator back during World War II, I'm sure he would have been saying the same thing. He's just being ripped apart on Twitter for this. But he's saying, I want a meeting with the military. I want to meet with the Marines and talk about this because one of their generals in, in uniform went on, on uh, YouTube and said, uh, why are you guys making these stupid things about women in the military? They're just fine. We got a fine fighting force. But I wanted to start out with the, uh, the rant that I posted this morning over at HartmanReport.com. And typically our, our main rant for the day is there. It's free, you can read it, you can share it, whatever you want. HartmanReport.com. And it starts out with the story of back in 1983, Louise and I had started a travel business in suburban Atlanta. The travel industry had been deregulated in the previous four years. It was mostly deregulated in 79 by Jimmy Carter. And as a result, uh, we walked into you know, a business opportunity, as it were. We, we created a travel agency that did what travel agencies had never done before. We offered a frequent flyer program for our customers, for the travel agency customers. And it really worked well, and it built our business really rapidly and got us on the front page of the Wall Street Journal twice. And, uh, but, but the point is that Louise was running the front end of the business and I was kind of running the back end. And on the front end, she was out working with our travel agents and supervising them and interacting with customers. And I'll never forget the day that uh, this one fairly regular, fairly important customer of ours came in and said to her, uh, well, honey, can you get me a decent ticket to Dallas? And Louise, uh, her reply was pretty straightforward. She said, I'm not your honey. And he said, well, sweetie, I'm still looking for a trip. You know, words to that effect. And she essentially brushed it off and moved on because back in 1983 putting up with that kind of sexist crap was just kind of what women did in the service industry in the United States particularly if they wanted to keep their job or their business 
Louise had been a, you know, she put herself through college as a, as a waitress at Howard Johnson's in East Lansing, Michigan, back in the 60s. And back then, had she said, I'm not your sweetie, she could have been fired. I mean, that's, so we've seen these, these transitions from in the 60s, you get fired for talking back to a man who's being a misogynistic ass, to the 80s, where you can talk back to them, but it doesn't always change their behavior, to today, where you can literally you know, get people fired uh, for that kind of behavior, which I think is all good. I mean, this is, this is, these are good changes in culture. In fact, part of, for Louise and I, part of our official Let's Keep Sane program, there's two things we do every day to try and maintain our sanity. One is we always walk two miles every day, or actually it's 1.96 is the round trip from here to, there's a hotel down the street along the river that we walk to and back. And, you know, that daily walk has helped our health. Um, you know, my blood pressure is largely normalized. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great thing. But the other thing we do is uh, we also, every evening after the news is over at uh, seven o'clock, we watch some dumb old TV show. And sometimes it's new movies and sometimes, you know, there's been, been a bunch of things. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been binge watching the old Cagney and Lacey TV cop series from 1985, 86. Uh, I think we're up to 86 right now. And, you know, Cagney is this young, attractive blonde woman, and Lacey, she's got three kids. So Lacey is kind of like the, uh, the homebody, and Cagney is kind of like the single scene person. And Sharon Glass, who plays Cagney, and the acting on this show is just brilliant, by the way, is a young woman in a police squad room who's constantly being hit on by the men who are, she's a cop, they're cops, and, you know, occasionally you can see how much it upsets her. Usually she just brushes it off or even throws it back in their faces or makes fun of them. That's the world that Andrew Cuomo grew up in. And if the reports are true, he has failed to realize that culture has changed a lot since 1986. Or maybe he just doesn't give a crap and, and truly is one of those fools who thinks he can get away with just about anything. But in either case, in, in my humble opinion, if these uh, allegations prove to be true and you've got a, enough smoke here that it's pretty, I think it's a pretty good guess that there's a fire, he probably has no business being governor of New York. But we'll let that process shake itself out. My larger point is that lots of things that were literally unacceptable just 10, 15 years ago are now absolutely acceptable. In fact, they're the new norm. Gay marriage, a great example. It wasn't until Joe Biden blurted it out that Barack Obama came along on the topic. We've stopped vilifying people with drug problems as criminals and bad people. Here in Oregon, we have completely legalized or decriminalized possession of small amounts of all drugs, even heroin, and taken the money from police that would have been used to put people in prison and redirected that to drug treatment programs, which is a really good step forward. I, you know, I hope more states do that. Superstition has taken a nosedive. Back in 1963, only 1% of Americans basically said they had no religion. And today you can be an atheist, agnostic, a Wiccan, whatever you want. So police used to get a pass on whatever they did. Now we're holding them accountable. In fact, we're trying really, really hard. So the question is, when are we going to start holding billionaires accountable? You know, uh, Bill Gates speaks and everybody hangs on his every word about how wonderful nuclear power is. Or Mark Zuckerberg gets all these invitations to have secret dinners with Donald Trump. Times are changing. 
And Republicans are still, I think, stuck 30, 40 years ago, apparently. But as our nation becomes more progressive socially, and men are discovering that they can no longer abuse their power and wealth like Donald Trump did in every chance he had throughout his life. Are we seeing a change now with the way that we look at CEOs and very wealthy people and how we tax wealthy people? We have been through these cycles a couple of times in the United States. After the Republican Great Depression in the 1930s, we raised the tax on really rich people up to 91%. Is it time to do that again? I think so. Is our society ready for it? I think we're damn close. Your thoughts? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And what other social changes am I missing in my list here of ways that society has radically updated itself in the last, well, in our lifetimes? So daylight savings time began. I prefer regular time. I'm a morning person. Well, I have have to get up in the morning early to do this show because I live here on the West Coast. So we go on the air at 9 a.m. So for Louise and I, our show prep day starts at 5 a.m. It was really nice last week when the sun started coming up around 5.30. And by 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, we had a reasonable amount of daylight and you know, to get up and around and all that kind of stuff. And that was, that was, I, I like that. And now that's gone. It's, uh, we're getting up in the dark again. I just think this is crazy. But I'm going to dig into that in a little more detail in just a second. I did want to mention two other things very quickly, just because they're, they're kind of news specific and, and timely. People are starting to receive their $1,400 stimulus checks. And a lot of people received them over the weekend. And a lot of customers of Wells Fargo and Chase have not received them where they're being directly deposited into their accounts. Although Wells Fargo and Chase have the money. They've received hundreds of billions of dollars from the federal government. But they're saying, you know, we're just going to sit on this money until Wednesday and uh, use it to make a profit. And they will. They'll make billions of dollars in profits off this. And then, you know, use that profits for our bonuses, for our CEOs, and maybe for dividends to our shareholders. But, you know, basically, screw you, uh, America, says Wells Fargo and Chase. That's, uh, and, and there's a lot of people who are seriously pissed off about that. Uh, if you haven't seen your deposit, uh, your $1,400 uh, deposit show up in your checking account today, and you are with one of those two big banks, and maybe other banks, those are the two that are in the news, Uh, You may want to contact them and share your opinions of that with them. Anyhow, a year or three ago, Oregon, Washington, even British Columbia, basically the northern west coast states. See, the farther north you are, the more exaggerated are the seasonal swings in terms of daylight. If you live on the equator, you've got 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness year-round. It never changes. If you live at the North Pole, you've got about a month where you've got an entire day where the sun never sets and an entire month, more or less, where you have an entire day where the sun never rises. And so the farther you get, you know, the closer you are to the North Pole, the farther north you go, the more exaggerated these time swings become. So the northern part of the West Coast, Oregon, Washington State, British Columbia, we all voted a couple of days, a couple of years ago to say uh, enough. Get rid of this switch. 
Now, there is some debate about whether we should go permanent daylight savings time, which is what we have right now, or whether we should go permanent regular time, which is what we just left. And the night owls want permanent daylight savings time, and the morning people want permanent regular savings time. And I'm fine with either, frankly. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't want the change. And I don't want the change because it's, it's bad. It's not just bad business policy, it's bad public health policy. Marco Rubio reintroduced the so-called Sunshine Protection Act, which would make daylight savings time the permanent time of the United States. And Ron Wyden, one of my senators, has co-signed it. I'm okay with that. I'd prefer regular time, but I'll take daylight savings time. I'll take anything if we don't have to change these things. Maria Cantwell, who's one of the senators from Washington State, which has also voted to end daylight savings or to end the switch by citizen referendum. Maria Cantwell is now the chair of that committee, the Senate Commerce Committee, that oversees daylight savings time. Now, we have two states, Arizona and Hawaii, that completely ignore the change. Puerto Rico doesn't, uh, which is not a state, but a U.S. territory, ignores the change. They stick to standard time year-round. I think we should be doing what Arizona is doing and stick with standard time, Arizona and Hawaii. Now, Hawaii, again, you know, a little, they, they don't have that huge a seasonal variation. They're not on the equator, but they're in that direction. But there is an actual consequence to these switches. Not so much to the daylight savings time or lack of it itself, but to the change. Because what you're doing is you're producing jet lag. And it takes a few weeks to recover. Dr. Mary uh, Gillis, uh, writing over at wishtv.com, notes, There are consequences following the clock change, such as an increase in heart attacks, strokes, work-related accidents, suicides, and motor vehicle accidents. And she points out that sleep-deprived teen drivers, kids trying to drive to school in the morning, you know, this would be high school kids and college kids, are particularly hard hit by the time change, and the effects can be deadly. She says, you've got these teenagers who are sleepy. They have an uptick in their accident rate. One statistic shows there was a 6% increase in traffic fatalities in the week following the spring clock change. So... Why do we do this? You know, I get at the backstory, there were these two guys who wanted more time to play golf, and they, they were kind of single-handedly responsible for this. They got the whole golf lobby on board, and they lobbied Congress and made it happen. But really? Do we really need daylight savings time? Fifteen states have already voted to extend daylight savings time year-round. But it, it really is going to require a federal bill to nationalize it, as it were. And Marco Rubio, again, like I said, and Ron Wyden are pushing this. Rubio cited uh, reduced rates of crime, traffic accidents, and less seasonal affective disorder. What is, uh, the, you know, the acronym is uh, SAD, S-A-D, and it's, it's a condition that people get where they don't, they're not exposed to enough sunlight, and therefore they end up with uh, depression. Most health experts say that there is not only no good biological reason to change the time twice a year, but the studies show that people get better sleep during standard time because the bright morning light and the reduced evening light help make them fall asleep easier. I'm all in favor of that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. 
Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I just wanted to, to plug something that uh, an old friend of mine did. Peter Werby was a talk show host on the IE America radio network, the first network that carried my show. We started the show in 2003. We started it on a local radio station in Burlington, Vermont. And then I sent out tapes to other stations and networks. And IE America Radio was a radio network. They had 27 radio stations and they were on Sirius. This was before Sirius merged with XM. And they had, you know, Mike Malloy and Peter Werby was one of their talk show hosts. It's a really great talent lineup. The network was owned by the UAW. And they picked up my show in the noon to three Eastern time day slot, which is where it is right now. And Peter was the guy who, as I recall, followed me. But he had a show on that network and, and was a longtime fixture in Detroit radio and goes way, way back in Detroit. And Peter and I have been friends for years and years now. And he's got a novel out. And, you know, we don't normally review novels and, and that sort of thing. But I was reading it over the weekend and it's so filled with historical facts. I mean, you know, he lived through the anti-war movement, the rise of the, the drug movement, as it were, if you want to call it that, the civil rights movement. I mean, he was right in the middle of all of this. And he wrote a novel about it that is really, really well written and gives you a real sense of what it was like in the late 60s in Detroit. I just want to recommend it. It's called Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel, and it's by Peter Werbe, W-E-R-B-E. So if you can figure out a way to get it, I'm not, I don't recall exactly where, I think I might have had to go to Peter's website, which I think is peterwerby.com, but, but Google it or, you know, DuckDuckGo it or whatever if you're interested. If you, you know, if you like reading fiction and that kind of thing, Peter did a really good job with this. I'm really, really impressed. So picking up your phone calls, Christine in Bloomington, Minnesota. Hey, Christine, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. You were talking about daylight saving time earlier and mm -hmm. going full year. Well, we tried that back in the 70s. In 1974, daylight saving time started on January 6th, and in 75, it was on February 23rd. They had to stop because it was really dangerous. I was a kid in school. It was pitch dark in the mornings. You know, kids were going off to school with absolutely no daylight. That experiment only lasted two years. And I wish people would kind of understand there is a history of this before they start to advocate for year-round daylight saving time. Yeah, that's why we should have year-round regular time. Exactly. I am opinion. total agree. Yes, I agree. The daylight saving yeah. time is too dark for, especially up here in Minnesota, in January or February. Yeah, I'm completely with you. Christine, thank you. Excellent point, and thank you for making it. Rick in Danby, New York. Hey, Rick, what's up? There are uh, four time zones in the United States and therefore three borders between two time zones. And at those borders, the clock is an hour different all the time. But twice a year, it <laughs> you may as well just, what difference does it make? Because it'll, it'll kind of vary for the whole year because there's also local time and sun time, which is the time that you would get on a sundial. And I don't think it makes sense to keep changing. I mean, everybody gets disrupted and it doesn't do any good. Yeah. Well, here's a radical alternative. We could do what China has done. They have no time zones. The entire country is all the same time. So if they say, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock. Yeah, if they say the west end of China. If they say, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock for lunch, 2 o'clock might be lunch. On the east side of China, they may be saying, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock for dinner. 
but everybody, wherever they live, they understand what two o'clock means. And so then nationwide, if a television network says, you know, tune in at two o'clock for our fire at five o'clock for our special report, people know, you know, some people know that's going to be in their morning. Some people know it's going to be in their afternoon. Some people know it's going to be in their evening, but they know when it's going to be. And that's another possibility is just do away with time zones altogether. Although I, I doubt most Americans would be all excited about that. Russia has, I think, 11 time zones. It's huge. Yes. I was trained as an astronomer, and uh, we used universal time, and it worked really good. One time yeah. zone for the world. <laughs> and yeah, that was, and that was Greenwich, Greenwich Mean Time, now called Zulu time, right? right. Uh, through the Greenwich yep. Meridian in the UK. Correct. Let's go to universal time. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. The, have the entire world do what China is doing right now, which is, okay, here's this, no, I mean, time is just a number, right? And so here's the time, you know, it is currently, you know, that's a very real possibility. I doubt, you know, I think it's too much for Americans, but as a starting point, let's just abandon <laughs> daylight savings time altogether. Rick, You're thank you for the call. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I just wanted to, to plug something that uh, an old friend of mine did. Peter Werby is, was a talk show host on the IE America radio network, the first network that carried my show. When we started the show in, in, in uh, 2003, we started it on a local radio station in Burlington, Vermont. And then I sent out tapes to, to you know, other stations and networks. And IE America Radio was a, ne a radio network. They had 27 radio stations, and they were on Sirius X, and they were on Sirius. This was before Sirius merged with XM. 
and uh, they had, you know, Mike Malloy and Peter Werby was one of their talk show hosts. It's a really great ta ta talent lineup. The, the network was owned by the UAW. And uh, they picked up my show in the noon to three Eastern time day slot, which is where it is right now. And Peter was the guy who, as I recall, followed me. Uh, it, but he had a show on that network and, and, uh, and, and, and was a long time fixture in Detroit radio and goes way, way back in, in Detroit. And Peter and I have been friends for years and years now. And he's got a novel out. And, you know, we don't normally review novels and, and that sort of thing, but I was reading it over the weekend, and it's so filled with historical facts. I mean, you know, he lived through the anti-war movement, the rise of the, the, the drug movement, as it were, uh, if you want to call it that, the, the civil rights movement. I mean, he was right in the middle of all of this. And he wrote a novel about it that is really, really well written and gives you a real sense of what it was like in the late 60s uh, in Detroit. And uh, I, I just want to recommend it. It's called Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel, and it's by Peter Werbe, W-E-R-B-E. -E. So uh, if you can figure out a way to get it, I'm not, I don't recall exactly. What, I think I might have had to go to Peter's website, which I think is peterwerbe.com, but, but Google it or, you know, DuckDuckGo it or whatever if you're interested. If you, you know, if you like reading fiction and that kind of thing, um, uh, Peter did a really good job with this. I'm really, really impressed. So, picking up your phone calls, Christine in Bloomington, Minnesota. Hey, Christine, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I, you were talking about daylight saving time earlier and mm -hmm. going full, full year. Well, we tried that back in the 70s. In 1974, um, daylight saving time started on January 6th. And in, Jan in 75, it was on February 23rd. They had to stop because it was really dangerous. I was a kid in school. It was pitch dark in the mornings. You know, kids were going off to school with absolutely no daylight. That experiment only lasted two years. And I wish people would kind of understand there is a history of this before they start to um, advocate for year-round daylight saving time. Yeah, that's why we should have year-round regular time. Exactly. I am opinion. total agree. Yes, I agree. The daylight saving yeah. time is too dark. For especially up here in Minnesota in January or February. Yeah, I, I am I'm completely with you. Christine, thank you. Excellent point, and thank you for making it. Dave, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Rick in uh, Danby, New York. Hey, Rick, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, can you hear me? Hey, just fine. Thanks hey. for listening to WHMP. What's on oh, your oh, mind? Thanks, Tom. Thanks. I'll try to be uh, succinct. Uh, there are uh, four time zones in the United States and therefore three borders between two time zones. And at those borders, the uh, the clock is an hour different all the, all the time. But twice a year, it <laughs> you may as well just, what difference does it make? Because it'll, it'll kind of vary for the whole year because there's also local time and sun time, which is the time that you would get on a sundial. And I don't think it makes sense to keep changing it. I mean, everybody gets disrupted and it doesn't do any good. Yeah. Well, here's a radical alternative. We could do what China has done. They have no time zones. The entire country is all the same time. So if they say, I'll meet Are you, you at 2 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if they say, you know, on, on, the, on the west side of uh, the west end of China, if they say, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock for lunch, 2 o'clock might be lunch. On the east side of China, they may be saying, I'll meet you at 2 o'clock for dinner. Um, but, you know, so, but everybody, wherever they live, they understand what two o'clock means. 
And, and so then nationwide, if a television network says, you know, tune in at two o'clock for our fire at five o'clock for our special report, people know, you know, some people know that's going to be in their morning. Some people know it's going to be in their afternoon. Some people know it's going to be in their evening, but they know when it's going to be. And that's another possibility is just do away with time zones altogether. Although I, I doubt most Americans would be all excited about that. Russia has, I think, 11 time zones. It's huge. Yes. I was trained as an astronomer, and uh, we used universal time, and it worked really good. One time yeah. zone for the world. <laughs> and yeah, that was, what, and that was Greenwich, sun, Greenwich Mean Time, now called Zulu Time, right? right. Uh, through the Greenwich yep. Meridian in the UK. Correct. Let's go to universal time. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. The, have the entire world do what China is doing right now, which is, okay, here's this, no, I mean, time is just a number, right? And so here's the time, you know, it is, it is currently, you know, 1044, well, it's now 1045.03 here on my clock. And uh, although my clock is probably about 10 seconds ahead of yours because we've got an obscenity delay in here. But, but uh, you know, let's, that's, that's a very real possibility. I, I, I doubt, you know, I think it's too much for Americans. But as a starting point, let's just abandon <laughs> daylight savings time altogether. Rick, You're thank you for the call. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of the news today and your calls right here on the Tom Hartman program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. This is uh, apropos of the British royal family, and I didn't want to get let this slide by, and then I'll pick up your phone calls right after I share this with you. But Debbie Nagarwa Packer is a member of New Zealand's parliament. She represents the Maori Party. She and a person by the name of Rawiri Waititi are the two heads of the Maori Party in the New Zealand parliament. So in the New Zealand parliament, they actually have a party representing the indigenous people of New Zealand, and they have two city members. And somebody asked her about Meghan Markle, about this video of Meghan Markle. And uh, this is what the co-leader of New Zealand's Maori Party had to say, Debbie Neguera Packer. She said, the crown? I mean, I don't know why everybody's so surprised that the crown is racist. I stand here as a descendant of a people who've survived a Holocaust, a genocide sponsored by this house and members of parliament whose portraits still hang in the walls, people who sought our extermination and created legislation to achieve it. They took her people's lands, they imprisoned them without trial, murdered and raped women and children, and deliberately engineered our displacement for generations to come. And you're asking me if the royal family is racist? Now, of course, the royal family is saying, no, no, we're not racist at all. And it's kind of that weird double bind that I think some white Americans find themselves in trying their very hardest to be not racist and yet at the same time acknowledging that the history, even the relatively recent history, in fact, even the current actions that are being done by majority white people in states like Georgia, for example, with the Republican Party, are still racist. So, you know, it's a tough one. There's another point here that I wanted to make, and that's about the border problem. You've got a group of Republican members of Congress who are flying down to the southern border 
And yes, there are more people approaching the border. In fact, there's more unaccompanied teens. There are young people in there. You know, these are not children, children. They're, you know, 15, 16, 17 year olds, 14 year olds. Kids who 100 years ago would have been of legal age to marry and to work. In other words, they're, you know, post-puberty kids who are showing up. And one of the reasons that they're showing up is because, number one, they know about the successes of DACA and they would like to, you know, they're hoping to be the next generation that gets incorporated into that. But I think perhaps more importantly, and many of them are fleeing climate change driven disasters in Central America and gang violence and, and you know all these all the violence that was visited on Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala by the Reagan administration that continues to this day. I mean we totally disrupted the governments of these three countries because they were all quote going socialist and that disruption continues to this day. But the main reason why people are showing up is that for the last two months, Republicans have been running around calling Joe Biden's policies open border policies. And they're not. Biden didn't open up the border and say, hey, come on in, no problem, everything's good. But the Republicans are messaging that. High profile Republicans are messaging that. People like Ted Cruz are messaging that from you know a Texas senator. You've got Republicans who are speaking to the press, referring to Biden's immigration policies as open border policies, and those stories are being reported in South and Central, in Central and uh, Central America and Mexico. Now, if you lived in Central America or Mexico, and you read that you know a dozen Republican senators just said that Joe Biden has opened the border, and you thought, hey, if I go to go to America, I have a better chance for the future. Wouldn't you come? If Republicans really cared about economic refugees, which is what they, it's the only thing they'll talk about, right? I mean, there's two kinds of people coming into the United States right now. There are political, essentially political or persecution refugees, people who are fleeing from from governments that are persecuting them or more likely, more often, organized crime gangs that are persecuting them literally robbery, rape, and murder. They're fleeing from that. And people who are fleeing from that kind of thing are called refugees. They are seeking refuge in the United States. And there's one complete set of laws and and organizations in the federal government that deal with refugees. There's the ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And that's that's the office that is having, that is struggling with this 4,000 kids now that are in these facilities that, that Trump left behind. You know, Trump shut down a whole lot of, a lot of the uh, refugee resettlement programs, laid off or fired people. I mean, it just gutted those programs. And so they're trying to deal with refugees the way that we've always dealt with refugees, which is, okay, we will, we will bring you into the country and protect you, keep track of you, give you a hearing, and you may or may not be deported based on what we learn about your circumstances, but you've got to make your case. And there's a certain number of refugees that we'll take in every year. It's a, you know, it's typically a couple hundred thousand. We're not talking huge numbers of people here. Well, Trump just totally screwed that up. And Biden is going back to the policies, but he doesn't have the infrastructure anymore. So he's got to rebuild that, and he's trying to do that very quickly. And, and the media is correctly pointing this out. 
And then you've got these so-called economic refugees, the people who are coming to the United States looking for a better life. Well, you can stop the economic refugees easily and quickly by simply going back to enforcing the laws like we did before 1986 when Reagan stopped enforcing them, which say that if people employ people who are in this country without documentation, the employer goes to jail. I, I lived and worked in Germany for a year. I have worked in Australia. I was, it was just a couple of weeks, but I had to get a work permit. In both cases, my employer in Germany and my employers in Australia, I was speaking in three different cities, in, in Sydney, Perth, and, and Melbourne. And, and you know, different groups sponsored me. But in, in both those cases, those employers were hysterical about my, making sure that I got a proper work permit. It took me six months to get my German work permit. It took about two months, as I recall, to get the Australian work permit. They were hysterical about making sure I got those permits because they could go to jail if I showed up and worked in those countries and took a paycheck without having a work permit. Republicans refuse to allow this to happen in America because there's a bunch of big businesses, particularly the meatpacking industry and the construction industries, which give lots of money to Republicans, that want to exploit people who are here without documentation and filled with fear. They could fix this in a day. Just put employers in jail and you'll stop the economic immigrants and then let's deal honestly and fairly and humanely with actual refugees. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery by Mark Charles and Soon Chan Ra. This is from chapter one. You cannot discover lands that are already inhabited. I, Mark, said this almost under my breath as I walked past a line of men dressed as Spanish sailors from the 1490s. I was in front of Union Station in Washington, D.C., near the massive statue of Christopher Columbus overlooking the United States Capitol. Every Columbus Day, there's an official ceremony in this plaza honoring Columbus as the discoverer of America. I had stumbled upon this uh, ceremony by accident the year prior. There were a few non-natives holding signs and protesting the ceremony, but nothing very disruptive. I went back the following year primarily out of curiosity. I wasn't intending to protest, nor did I want to make a scene. As I walked up behind the statue and approached the group of men dressed as Spanish sailors, the words just came out of my mouth. You cannot discover lands already inhabited. As I walked further down the line, I said it again, this time a little louder. You cannot discover lands already inhabited. As I continued walking, I came to the front of the line where a group of men dressed in suits were standing. I repeated myself, making sure they could hear me. You cannot discover lands already inhabited. Suck it up, was the reply I heard as I kept walking. By this time, I had walked around the statue and reached the front where a small stage had been erected and chairs set up for people to watch the ceremony. It hadn't started yet, but more than half the audience was seated waiting for it to begin. So I stopped near the center, turned toward the crowd, and in a calm but loud voice, I said to the people, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. That process is known as stealing, conquering, or colonizing. The fact that America calls what Columbus did discovery reveals the implicit racial bias of the country, that Native Americans are not fully human. Quickly, one of the white men dressed in a suit walked over and interrupted me. 
You are not welcome here, he said as he grabbed my arm and began walking me away. I attempted to explain the inappropriateness of both celebrating this holiday as well as hosting this ceremony, but instead of engaging in conversation, he threatened me with arrest and escorted me from the area. As I walked away from the gathering, I was amused at his words and the irony of their context. A white man participating in a public ceremony honoring Christopher Columbus as the discoverer of America, telling a native man he was not welcome in that space. How did a flawed assumption about the place of the indigenous population in U.S. society become normative? How are assumptions so deeply ingrained in the American psyche and imagination that dysfunctional and oppressive actions emerge? How did a dysfunctional idea and worldview form that allows for the displacement of native bodies? One of the explanations for the formation of this dysfunctional worldview is the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery is a set of legal principles that governed the European colonizing powers, particularly during the administration of indigenous land, uh, regarding the administration. It is the primary legal precedent that still controls native affairs and rights and international law formulated in the 15th and 16th centuries. From a theological perspective, the legal and political role of the doctrine of discovery is rooted in a dysfunctional theological imagination that shaped the European colonial settler worldview. The doctrine emerged from a series of 15th century papal bulls, which are official decrees by the Pope that carry the full weight of his ecclesiastical office. On June 18, 1452, Pope Nicholas V issued the papal bull Dum Diversus, which initiated the first set of documents that would compose the doctrine of discovery. The official decree of the Pope granted permission to King Alfonso V of Portugal, quote, to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, Muslims, and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed, and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors the kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to his or their use and profit. End of quote from... Pope Nicholas's papal bull of 1452. Doom diverses would identify the Saracens, a common term for Muslims at the time, and pagans, essentially identifying any non-Christians as others, as those who could be targeted for, quote, perpetual slavery. The papal bull intentionally used language that identified those outside the European Christian world and enforced the Western theological imagination of non-Europeans as other. The Portuguese took these ecclesiastical statements to heart and perpetrated the slave trade from the African continent to the European and the American continents. As a Christian ruler, the king of Portugal would have, had, would have power endowed from the church to take possession of the other as slave labor from the continent of Africa. The pagan African body was just another commodity to be taken for the pleasure and profit of the European Christian body, the one made most fully in the image of God. In the January of 1454, Pope Nicholas authored another bull. The book is Unsettling Truths by Charles and Ra.
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Deborah in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm watching you on YouTube, and um, I want to present a case to you, and I want to know what you think about it, what you think the pros and cons are. And this is my mm-hmm. argument. I think that if anybody could pull this off, it would be Joe Biden. What do you think about if Joe Biden were to work with Iran on moving them towards becoming an ally, what that would serve is peace between Israel and Iran, maybe more stability in Iraq with you know, more stability concerning Saudi Arabia, maybe peace with Saudi Arabia, and maybe peace in Syria. And Lord knows that they've showed great restraint. They kept up their part of the bargain even after they were pressed and pressured. And, um, you know, they. I think that they've shown great restraint. And I think that the people have an appreciation of America. It's not really the people. I mean, we love their people, too, I think. Most people I know. I think that I would like to see more partnership with Iran. I think that we would make a good partnership with them. And I think that we can move forward with bringing something about with maybe turning them into an ally instead of this pressure to make them a foe. What do you think? I absolutely agree with your perspective, Deborah. What Iran has been saying and doing for the last really 40 years is Iran is a, a substantial country. As I recall, their population is like 70 million or in that neighborhood. It's a huge landmass. I mean, this is a big country with an ancient heritage. They have been continuously a continuous government, more or less, for about 700 years. Nobody has conquered Iran in that you know, period of time. They used to be called Persia. And, you know, proud people, a unique standalone culture, you know, culturally, they're unique relative to the people around them. They are not they do not consider themselves Arabs, for example, although it's a very Muslim country. And what they have been saying all these years is we've got Israel with nuclear weapons. 
We've got Saudi Arabia with more money than God and a huge American-funded military and um, an American-provided, uh, you know, sold-to-them military, along with the UAE and others in the region, you know, they're saying. And we have to be able to defend ourselves. And so mm -hmm. the way that Haran has developed to defend themselves initially was what's called asymmetric warfare. In other words, through Hezbollah, they would, they would plant their people in Lebanon or in Israel or whatever and, and kind of fund what we refer to as a terrorist network in order to say, if you attack us, we can flip the switch and turn these people on and you guys are going to see terrorist attacks like you never in your life imagined. And they have you know, openly threatened that to the United States as well. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, they said, well, you know, we can, we can, everybody wants us to do, do away with that, dial back, and, th and this is a hyper-simplified uh, explanation, by the way, but everybody wants us to dial back on that, so we're going to do what Israel did, we're going to create a nuclear weapon. And, of course, everybody in the world freaked out, and we, we got the Iran nuclear deal, but they still have these connections with Hezbollah, and that's the major stumbling block. And, frankly, I think that a uh, Gorbachev-Reagan kind of de-escalation is possible if the United States was, uh, you know, because what we've said all along is, is disarm Hezbollah and stop, you know, the, your, your, your asymmetrical warfare presence in these other countries. And, and we can treat you like, at least like, you know, a, a fully honorable and full member, you know, of the community of nations kind of thing. And Iran has said, no, we're not willing to give that up until we know that you're not going to attack us. And I, I think that there's a middle ground in there. I think that there's a, an opportunity for rapprochement. And I think that both sides are exhausted. And I think this change, this 40-year political cycle change that I'm talking about, that we're seeing here in the United States, we're seeing this in the UK as well. We're seeing this in many other countries. Now, there's also a rise of right-wing nationalism that's happening. But I think that the progressive movement is sweeping the world. And frankly, I think it's sweeping Iran as well. I mean, I don't know if you saw the pictures of uh, the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini and uh, Pope, John, or Pope Francis. But uh, the Ayatollah looks like he's on his last legs. I mean, that, you know, uh, talk about boomers fading. I mean, that, that generation is on the verge of going. And, and you know, uh, I, I think, you know, like Bonnie Sauter, for example, the, the guy who ran for president in 1980, in August of 1980, he won the presidency of Iran with 74% uh, of the vote on a platform of releasing the hostages to the United States. And then, of course, when he called up Jimmy Carter, when he finally became president in August of, two, of, of 1980, he called up President Carter and said, um, you know, I want to release the hostages. Carter, Carter would say, great, let's work this out. And so he goes to the Ayatollah and he says, let's release the hostages. And the Ayatollah says, you can't do that. We cut a deal with the Reagan campaign. And, you know, and, and Bonnie Sauter, the, pres the president of Iran, writes about this in the Christian Science Monitor. And I've linked to that many times over the years. It's still up. It's still there. The, his article in the Christian Science Monitor where he says, you know, I was told that we, we've got this deal with the Reagan campaign because we need uh, American-made weapons. And Reagan will give them to us and Carter won't. And, and that's, you know, and that's how it played out. So all this stuff has to be resolved and, and cleaned up. But I think you're on to something, uh, Deborah, and I'm very happy that you called and, and shared that with us. Thank you. Randall in Minneapolis. Hey, Randall, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. By what? 
Oh, well, you know, you and I, we go back to Kennedy, and you know much more about the intricacies of that. But I'm looking forward to Biden uh, letting those papers finally out. I think it's time. And that'll clean up a lot of things that have been uh, undercover between Kennedy and now. And I think it all started with Kennedy. And now, finally, I'm seeing the pendulum fly the other way. I'm seeing the scales of justice come to equality. It's just a fantastic, fabulous time for me to see the tuition. I thought Obama gave them all the rope in the world to hang themselves, and he did. And here we are. They're hanging themselves on a daily basis. It's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, you got Ron Johnson going on Newsmax, you know, basically again saying, oh, you know, the insurrectionists were not violent and maybe it was Antifa. And I just, I don't think anybody outside of a small band of, of, of right-wing crackpots, zealots, and, you know, religious uh, crazies who make up a, a good chunk of the, the whole Q thing now, I think that's the only people who are buying it. I don't think Republicans are buying it anymore. I don't think Americans are buying it anymore. Thank you for the call. Some interesting stuff in the news. Only one in four House members have said no to the COVID vaccine. Well, actually, let me flip that upside down. Fully 25% of members of the House of Representatives have said, no, I don't want a vaccine. All Republicans, as far as we can tell. Kevin McCarthy is saying, well, we got 75% of the House vaccinated. So uh, if roughly half of them are Republican, that means only about half of the Republicans have been vaccinated. Because half of half is a quarter, right? And if a quarter, you know, has been vaccinated. And he's saying, well, let's get back to normal. And Nancy Pelosi's saying, no, not so fast. We want everybody vaccinated or at least enough people that, you know, we can feel safe. All right. Meanwhile, Senator Whitehouse, Sheldon Whitehouse, is calling on Merrick Garland to ask the FBI to finish the probe of Brett Kavanaugh that was put on hold as, as, as quickly as it was started during the Trump administration. There has never been a complete FBI investigation of Brett Kavanaugh. There are numerous women who have come forward alleging sexual violence on his part. None of them have been interviewed. They were, they were willing to talk to the FBI. They were willing to testify before the Senate. They never did either. Again, I think it speaks to this, you know, cultural change thing. You know, it's uh, in the 1950s, this wouldn't have even been an issue. In the 1970s, it only would have been the edge of an issue. It would have been considered, oh, that's part of that women's movement rhetoric, right? There would be a thoughtful article about it in Playboy. But today, no, we, you know, this, our culture has woken up. And meanwhile, finally, uh, there's still a few other things to share with you, but, but uh, this, this last one, I think this is just, hysterical. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, gave a speech about how important it is to pass legislation making it harder to vote in Texas. All right, we need to clamp down. We got to stop the voter fraud here in Texas. And so some reporters said, can you give us even one example of anybody in your entire state who's ever been arrested for voter fraud? Have you ever found even a single single case? that would justify, you know, the millions of dollars that this is going to cost and the hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people who aren't going to be able to vote as a result of these efforts? Greg Abbott's answer, and I quote, it's a 
a little bit more convoluted. I have no doubt that it took place here in the state of Texas, but we wait for the allegations to be made. We don't root it out ourselves. Right now, I don't know many or if any elections in the state of Texas in 2020 were altered because of voter fraud. I, I, I don't know. It's not. I don't, we don't look at that stuff. In other words, there's not one single case of voter fraud being prosecuted in the state of Texas. And nonetheless, the legislature is passing law after law after law to end voter fraud. And by the way, at the same time, make it a hell of a lot harder to vote. Yeah. Bob in Farmington, Missouri. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I'm perfectly fine with the FBI doing background checks and stuff, but their records are incorrect and there's no way to correct them. They say I have three felonies on my record. I don't. I've been through three lawyers. I've talked to the DEA, the FBI. There's no way to correct those records. Well, I would strongly suggest, Bob, that you call your member of the U.S. House of Representatives. They actually can lobby the FBI on your behalf. I know people who have done this with things like the no-fly list. Just call your U.S. rep, your, your congressman or congresswoman, call their office and ask to speak to the person who's responsible for constituent services. That's the phrase. And I would do that, you know, rather than trying to hire a lawyer, I would do that. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Uh, listen, I usually agree with you with almost everything that you talk about, but there's one thing that I have an issue with, and this is animal research. I have heard you a few times talking about how some research done in mice is going to find a cure for this or that. 90% of all the drugs and chemicals tests on animals fail human trials. They fail. It's a colossal failure. And continuing to testing on animals or incompatible species, drugs and chemicals or, or whatever, is a waste of money and time. We have more modern, more accurate ways to test drugs, chemicals with human models, mathematical models, human cells, human tissue, in vitro testing, etc., etc. And yet, they continue testing on animals because it is profitable. They get millions and millions of dollars from grants from the government. And in my opinion, you should really talk to Dr. Michael Greer, who has been a guest in your show before, about this because it's a total waste of time and money. I agree with you, Alfredo. Back in the 80s, when I was working with the International Salem Institute, they had a division called the Salem Research Laboratories, and they published a huge, I mean, it was like 600-page summary of times when research had been done on human cells in vitro, in test tubes, or in petri dishes. For example, thalidomide. Thalidomide, when it was tested on rabbits, showed it was not a mutagen. But when they tested on human cells, it was a mutagen. And they knew that at the time. But they still, because the law in England did not require the human cell test, only the animal test, they went forward. I completely agree with you. I'm glad to hear that, Tom. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, that publication from the Salem Research Institute, I'm pretty sure is out of print now. but, But there is no shortage of this stuff. I mean, using human tissue... And now they're doing this with brains. Have you seen it? They're calling, these are called organelles. And they take human stem cells and put them in contact with like a brain tissue cell. And, and it grows a little tiny brain. And they're actually working with these on medically induced mental diseases. They're growing kidneys. They're growing livers. Not the whole thing. Just, just enough that, you know, you can test on it. You can work on it. 
And I, it's a fascinating field. It's an absolutely fascinating field. So I'm not a big fan of animal research at all. And I think 99% of the time it can be replaced with research on human cells or on humans. And I don't know about the government grants for animal research. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Alfredo is probably right about that. But what I do know is from what I learned back in the 80s with the Salem Research Institute is that it is cheaper to do these tests on animals, or at least it was in the 1980s. And that may not be the case any longer. So, you know, tip of the hat to Alfredo. Brad in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'm thinking about cancel culture. I'm thinking about uh, the recall of Gavin Newsom, a guy I voted for. All the Republicans who get out on the streets around here to gather signatures, they're trying to cancel my vote. They're trying to repeat what they did with Gray Davis. Yeah, that's right. That was kind of disastrous. We took uh, three steps back after that. Yeah, well, you know, what happened, and I think a lot of people outside of California don't even know the story, and Californians may have forgotten, is that you had a for-profit power industry, Enron, and Ken Lay started these rolling blackouts across California, basically just to jack up the price they could charge. And, you know, now we've got the tapes of the guys here in Portland, actually, who were running the, the, the grid down in California going, hey, let's shut down grandma. That'll be funny. <laughs> and as these rolling blackouts were happening, the governor was like, you know, he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, it was a for-profit company. And everybody blamed Gray Davis for it. And so the Republicans came out and said, this is all Gray Davis's fault. And they got him recalled and, and you know, replaced him. Daryl Issa, in fact, was leading that charge because he thought, he was the guy who was going to get elected. When when Arnold Schwarzenegger announced that he was going to jump into the race, Gray Davis was in the middle of a press conference when that came out. Somebody asked him about it, and he literally started crying, you know, tears in his eyes. But, you know, that that's how California got Schwarzenegger, who wasn't a terrible governor, but, you know, he was a Republican. More tax cuts and more, you know, cutting things back. And now they're trying to do the same thing, only this time you've got Republicans who have been trying to sabotage every single effort of Governor Newsom to stop the coronavirus or control the coronavirus. They have sabotaged these through legal efforts. They've sabotaged them most importantly and largely through social media and the media by saying, oh yeah, you should go out without a mask and it's no big deal. And yeah, you know, go for it and all this kind of stuff. And it's the same strategy, sabotage a Democratic governor and then try to recall him so that you can replace him with a Republican. And I don't think it's going to work this time, Brad. Are you getting a sense? I mean, you live there in California. I don't, so I don't get all the California news. Do you have a sense that this might work? All the motivated Trumpist crazies are on board with this. You know, when you see guys collecting, uh, you know, the signatures, they got Trump hats on and they got Trump signs out. And, you know, they're 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 super motivated. And, you know, well, I don't doubt that they can get that. They can probably get that on the ballot. You know, a lot fewer people are going to vote for this thing. Republicans are good at getting out the vote. Yes, special elections. You're absolutely right. Brad, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for that. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 